before we look to the word, let's go to prayer. Oh, Lord God, we thank you that your word does give us the guidance that we need. We thank you, Father, that as we've prayed that you would guide us, we can entrust that your word will guide us, Father. Lord, it is a beautiful instrument. It is a wonderful revelation that you have given to us, Lord, which gives us both the joy of you as well as the how to go about following you. And we thank you, Father, that through Jesus Christ, if we know him, if we've repented of our sins and received him as Lord and Savior, being born again, a new person, the Lord, you now illuminate our minds and our hearts to be able to comprehend the mysteries and the joys and the wonderful realities that are in your word. And Lord, we thank you that with your word, you have given us the church. Not just the church universal, Father, of all Christians, of all times and all ages, but Lord, you have given us the local church. The church where a body of believers band together in love and commitment and responsibility, Lord, to grow in walk with you, Lord, and to take your message to those who are outside. We pray that you would guide us now, Lord, as we look to the important topic of church membership. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I cherish the doctrine of church membership because in this doctrine, the Christian intentionally and especially declares to a certain group of other Christians that I am with you and you are with me. That is a beautiful thing that we must cherish. It is a believer telling a congregation of other believers, I am making myself responsible to you. And you are now responsible, my friends, to me. And it is promising the body of Christians that I am committing to now love you and you are now committing to love me. I love that God has called us to that. This is a unique privilege and responsibility that is found under God in the local church. And I think that reality is essential to our fulfillment of such commands in the New Testament as Hebrews chapter 13, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 13, which says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He brings us together so that we would help each other not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And it also, I think, helps us fulfill commands like that found in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, where it says, Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It helps us bond together in love even as we face dark days and wait for the day of Jesus to finally come. Mark Dever, who is a pastor and an author of the well-known book, The Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, he writes this, Church membership is our opportunity to grasp hold of each other in responsibility and love. 
by identifying ourselves with a particular church, we let the pastors and other members of that local church know that we intend to be committed in attendance, giving, prayer, and service. We allow fellow believers to have great expectations of us in these areas, and we make it known that we are the responsibility of this local church. We assure the church of our commitment to Christ in serving them, and we call for their commitment to serve and encourage us as well. End quote. Well, this morning we're going to consider this important teaching in the New Testament. There are a number of reasons why a Christian today might hesitate to formally join a local church. There are some real reasons that are out there. And some of these reasons should compel other Christians to display great patience and tremendous tenderness towards them while they wait. Some believers have never been taught on the importance of church membership. And others may have been so hurt by a previous church that they are now hesitant to jump back in again with another one. And again, that requires great love and patience and help. These are people whom the Church of Christ must carefully teach and patiently encourage to understand the importance of this and help them to make that commitment, even though connecting with other redeemed sinners, sinners like me, can be scary. But there are also some not-so-great reasons why Christians today neglect to covenant together with a local body of believers in membership. Reasons that are akin to our modern attitude that resists commitment and resists covenant with other people. Some wonder whether the church down the road might at some point give them more of what they're looking for. So they decide, maybe they wouldn't admit it, but they decide to keep their options open. Or they have a fight and flight attitude whenever conflict arises, so they want to be able to leave quickly Whenever problems undoubtedly arise, because once again, churches are merely places that are filled up with redeemed sinners. And so it gives them the option to leave quickly if they need to. Well, the biblical doctrine of church membership pushes against such modern logic. For God's plans for this world are being carried out through local churches made up of believers in Christ who have intentionally committed themselves to each other and the gospel message that they together proclaim. Jared Wilson, an author and a blogger and a professor at Midwestern Seminary, he writes that the church is God's plan A for this world and there is no plan B. David McLemore, another blogger, he writes, If you want to join Christ in pressing his light into the darkness, you cannot do it apart from the church. The church is where he works. The church is where he saves. The church is where he builds. The church is where he moves. The church is who he's coming back for. When you join the church, you are saying, I will not let the darkness overcome the light. I will join Christ's army for his glory. I will join my brothers and sisters, not with a non-committal, I'll make it if I can attitude, but with a firm, I'll stand by you and die for you conviction worthy of the risen Christ. End quote. My good friends, I propose to you this morning that every Christian should be a member of a local church and every local church should practice meaningful church membership. 
But why? Why? Why is membership so important? Why is it so important? You may have a Costco membership. It's not like that. You may have a membership in a club. It is nothing like that. It is a membership in a body of believers under Christ for the glory of his name. Why is that so important? And one commonly asked question on this topic is, does the Bible anywhere explicitly state that Christians should become members in a local church? Does the Bible anywhere explicitly command this? And the answer is no. It is not explicitly stated in the scriptures. But it is strongly implied. Now, this is just like many other things that we believe in the scriptures that we receive because they are implicitly taught. The Trinity, for instance. You will scan your Bible from cover to cover and you won't find that word Trinity. Nor will you be able to go to one particular text and sinner and one particular text in Scripture and say, that is the sin qua non, that lays it out perfectly, that is exactly what we mean by the Trinity. No, you have to look at different texts of Scripture to come to the conclusion that God is one essence or one nature, and God is also three persons. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is in the beginning with God, and yet Jesus is in the beginning, and he was God at the beginning. Right? We don't understand that. But the Trinity is very clearly taught in Scripture, and we've accepted it in the Christian faith for hundreds upon hundreds of years. The sin of heroin addiction is also one that you will not find explicitly stated in Scripture. Nowhere in Scripture does it say you should not partake of heroin, but it is implicitly given to us that we should not be under the effects of things like heroin that would control us and dominate us and addict us. Ephesians 5 verse 18 says, Do not get drunk with wine. doesn't say heroin. Don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So what do we do with that? We see that instead of being under the control of something else, a foreign substance like wine, instead we should be under the control of the Spirit of God and His joyful working. So how do we apply that? We take what's implied... And we put it to every other situation and we say, anything that's going to control me and dominate my life and addict me, I've got to push away and instead be controlled by the Spirit. And so we say, yes, it's a sin to be taking heroin. So we do this often with many doctrines. Well, this morning we are going to look at some key New Testament texts to show us that covenant membership in the local church is implied and therefore necessary for us today. And I hope to do so humbly. Because perhaps some of this is new to some of us. Now, we're going to be moving around quite a bit in some different places in Scripture. This is not an exposition, per se, of one particular text. This is a little bit more topical this morning. I try not to do this too often, but I do want you to have the sense of what the New Testament teaches. And as we do so, we're going to consider five different places in Scripture where church membership is implied. First point this morning is that church membership is implied through the example of the early church. Church membership is implied through the example of the early church. If you would first turn with me to Acts chapter 2, 
And look with me at verses 37 to 47. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 856. Page 856 in the pew Bible, Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 47. Read those with me. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, verses 41 and 42 provides the New Testament pattern. They received the word of the gospel. They heard what Jesus did through Peter's preaching, and it's implied that they believed it. Then it says they were baptized, which means they were immersed, as we discussed last week. And then it says they were added. They were added, it says. About 3,000 souls were added to the church. They then devoted themselves to God's blessed means of grace for their church, which were the apostles' teaching and Christian fellowship and the breaking of bread, which was probably communion, and then prayer. They went and devoted themselves to those things. So can you imagine the gospel is preached on one day, the current group of people in this church, which is still trying to figure it out and is still being formed, the gospel is preached, and all of a sudden on one day, 3,000 people join the church. If that were to happen here, we'd probably have to consider the lawn and the parking lot with chairs. And we wish it would happen. They devoted themselves to what God had given them, these means of grace. And then verse 47 is also important. It says, The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So as they went about church life, God increased their number by saving more people. Here's what I think the implication is for our topic. There was a number that everyone seemed to understand and that was being added to day by day. They knew the 3,000 who at first believed. They were, knew the 3,000 who were baptized and added to them. And then they knew more people who were being added to their number later. We get the sense that they had a clear idea of who was in the church and how many were not in the church. It began with 3,000 and then they added more to it. So I think in the early church, we see that priority of people trusting Christ and then being baptized and then being added to the number of those in that community who are worshiping Jesus Christ. So I think we see that pattern. Now, secondly, my second point this morning is that church membership is implied 
in the biblical requirement of Christians to submit to a particular group of church leaders. Church membership is implied in the biblical requirement of Christians to submit to a particular group of church leaders. Look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. It'll be on page 929 if you're using the Pew Bible. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, look with me at verses 12 and 13. Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica these words. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Christians in the church have those who labor among us and are over us and even admonish us, it says. And certainly, Paul is talking here about the elders of this church. The church at Thessalonica had appointed men whom God had ordained, who labored for them and were over them and admonished them. These were the elders, I think, who led the church through preaching and teaching and exampling and leadership. And the Thessalonian church were to esteem them very highly in love, it says. But does Paul mean that they should follow any and every individual who might show up in Thessalonica on a given day and proclaim, I am an elder. Let me labor over you. Let me have authority over you. Let me admonish you. Or do you think Paul means that they were to follow the men who had been selected in their local church to be elders over them? Well, I think it's clear that he means the latter. And are these elders over every Christian on the face of the earth? Or are they over a particular group of Christians, a particular church, namely the Thessalonian church? Once again, I think it's clear that Paul means the latter. He says, we ask you, brothers, which he's referring to the church in Thessalonica, to respect those who are over you, the church in Thessalonica. So here's the implication. Christians are not commanded to be under every elder in every church, at least not directly. But they are commanded to esteem and follow those elders who are over them in their own local church. It is the membership of the local church in Thessalonica that was directed to follow and esteem these particular men. This is not a vague group he's speaking of here. These are the Christians who were members of this church and they were responsible to follow these specific men. A person who's not a member of a local church cannot say that a particular group of men are over them because they can take off whenever they want to. Members of a local church have certain men who they've agreed, you're going to be over me, I'm going to hold you accountable. There's a bond there, a covenant there that is made with a particular group of individuals. This is consistent with other places in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. 
These leaders keep watch over the souls of a certain body of Christians, and they will have to give an account for that certain body of believers. These men are not over the church universal, meaning they're not over every Christian of every day and of every place, but they are over specific local churches made up of individual members, members whom these leaders knew and were accountable for. Also, Paul says this in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So here's my question. If we're going to obey that verse, who are we to consider worthy of double honor? Meaning, who are we to pay more financially? I think that's what he means there. Who are we to pay more? because of his solid preaching and teaching? Is it the guy who strongly preaches on the podcast or on the radio or on the television? Or is it the elder or the elders of your local church to which you are a part? Again, I think it's clearly the latter. Sam Storms, a pastor, he writes this, Covenant membership in a local church is the way in which the individual is known to be intentionally committed to every other member of the congregation, and the congregation is known to be committed to the individual. Covenant membership means, I now put myself under the care of the elders, and I invite them to hold me accountable as a constituent member of this body. So church membership is implied in the biblical requirement of Christians to submit to a particular group of church leaders. Point three this morning. Church membership is implied in the way the New Testament requires elders to care for a particular flock. So point three and point two are very closely connected. Once again, point three, church membership is implied in the way the New Testament requires elders to care for a particular flock. If you would turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5 and look with me at verses 1 through 3, it's uh, page 955 in your pew Bible if you're using one. 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 1 through 3. Read along with these verses. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So, elders are to shepherd the flock of God that is among them, he says. And they are not to domineer over those individuals who are in their charge. The question we have to ask is, to whom are elders accountable? To whom are elders in a church accountable? Who are they responsible for? Who are they to actually shepherd? Who are the ones in their charge? Well, obviously, they're accountable to those who are part of their local churches. In verse 2, it says, the flock of God among you. In verse 3, it says, those in your charge. These elders were not responsible for the church at Corinth. 
in the way that the elders at Corinth were responsible for the church at Corinth. So here's the implication. The elders knew the people who they were responsible for. They knew those who were in their charge. They knew the people to whom they would one day have to give an account before God. They knew that they would not have to give an account for everyone on the earth who claimed the name of Jesus. No, they would give an account for those in their community who believed in Jesus and agreed to become a part of their local body. They knew the people who were in their churches and they saw their responsibility as with the people, this particular group of people in their church. Paul also says, well, Paul tells in Acts chapter 20, a group of Ephesian elders who came to him to another community to comfort him and encourage him, but also to receive some spiritual care from Paul. The elders from Ephesus, they come to Paul in Acts chapter 20, and this is what Paul says to the elders at Ephesus. He says to them in Acts 20 verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The elders of Ephesus were to pay careful attention to their flock, to the church at Ephesus, whom the Holy Spirit had made them overseers. They had a particular responsibility to those people in their church and not to everyone else. My friends, I take this real serious because this is me. This is a few of us in this room, and this counts me, and maybe some of you one day. One day, when I stand before God and the other elders of Riverside stand before God, we will have to give an account for how we shepherded Riverside, the members of this church. I don't take that lightly. But we will not have to answer for another church in another town that we have never been called to shepherd. Nor do I think we will have to give an answer at least in the same way for those who have not committed together with us in membership. I think elders, and the Bible I think supports this, have the right to know who they are responsible to and who they have charge of. And I think membership makes that clear. Now with this, my fourth point this morning is that church membership is implied by the New Testament teaching on church discipline. We don't like to talk about church discipline. It's not a fun topic, but oh how important it is for a local church to understand it and why we do it. I would invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 12 and 13. It's page 897 in the Pew Bible. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 12 and 13. Church membership is implied by the New Testament teaching on church discipline. Look with me at verses 12 and 13 of 1 Corinthians 5. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, you can go on your own time and learn what the sin issue is that's in the church at Corinth. If you read the rest of chapter 5, it's an egregious thing. It's a sexual issue. There's a man who's committed a very vile act, and he is charging them to discipline this individual. 
Well, again, he says in verse 12, What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? In this text, Paul delineates between two groups of people when it comes to church discipline. Local churches have no authority. Let me repeat. Local churches have no authority to judge or to discipline those who are outside the church. We are not the government that God has ordained over man to carry out justice. We have no authority to judge or discipline those who are outside the church. But local churches do have authority and responsibility to discipline those who are, he says, inside the church. And the implication, I think, is this. They knew who were inside, and they knew who was outside. They knew who was inside, and they knew who was outside. Now, I cannot promise you that they had a membership list somewhere like we utilize today, but they somehow knew who was an insider and who was an outsider when it came to the church at Corinth. They knew who was part of them, including this man who had sinned, and they knew those who were not part of them. They knew who their members were. Somehow, some way, they knew it. Well, a while later, writing about church discipline once again, perhaps actually referring back to this very same sin found here in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. For such a one... This punishment by the majority is enough. Listen to that again. Talking about church discipline, probably the same situation that we have here in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. Paul tells us that in the church Corinth, there was a majority who chose to discipline this individual. My friends, you cannot know if you have a majority unless you know the total number. You can't know if you have over 50% unless you know the number that makes up 100%. Once again, I cannot promise that they had a membership list which detailed their number like we do today, but they somehow knew who was inside and who was outside the church. They knew the number. Mark Dever, he writes in his book, The Church, physical lists of members may well have existed in the earliest Christian churches. Clearly, the keeping of lists was not unknown in churches. The early church kept lists of widows in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 9. God himself keeps a list of all who belong to the universal church in his book of life, Revelation 20, verse 12. Paul assumed that the Corinthians had identified a majority of a particular set of church members who were eligible to vote. And this was so important because it determined who they were responsible to discipline if there was sin and who they were not responsible to discipline if, they, if there was sin. Now, one unknown author, he writes this, You cannot fire someone who doesn't work for you. You can't vote in your country to remove a government official elected by another country. You can't appeal to a court to discipline someone who isn't within its jurisdiction. 
In the same way, you cannot formally discipline someone who is in an informal relationship with you. You have no authority to do so. These people in Corinth, he writes, had voluntarily committed themselves to a formal relationship and they knew who were official members of the church and who were outside. Author Michael McKinley, he says it a little bit more humorously. He says, I cannot be removed from the Northern California Left-Handed Golfers Association because I have never been a member of such an organization. Now, according to their website, the NCLHGA will remove people from membership for several reasons, like right-handedness, perhaps. But I am in no danger of being subject to such an action because you can't kick a person out who has never been a member to begin with. This is one vital reason why we should appreciate church membership. It allows us to know the people to whom we are accountable. And it allows us to know the people to whom we must especially exhort and help and even rebuke and even discipline if we must. My fifth point this morning, final point, is that church membership is implied when it came to New Testament decision-making in a local church. Church membership is implied when it came to New Testament decision-making in a local church. Look with me at Acts chapter 15, verse 22. It's page 869 in your pew Bible. Acts chapter 15, verse 22. Church membership is implied when it came to New Testament decision-making in a local church. Verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas they sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers. So there's an issue in the church at large, and in Acts chapter 15, they're trying to address it. And here, the Jerusalem church, they want to let everyone know about what conclusion they have come to. And it says, verse 22, that it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So my question is, who made the decision here to send these men? Who made the decision? This is one of the verses that makes me a congregationalist, that makes me believe that the congregation has a role in decision-making in a local church, that it's not just a body of men who've been selected who make all the decisions, but that the whole church has a role to play in certain areas. Well, in Acts chapter 15, verse 22, who made the decision here? Well, it was the apostles. And it was the elders. And also, it seems to tell us that it was the whole church. But who was the whole church? It stands to reason that it was the group of people who were already known and had been accepted as part of that church. The whole church, this group of decision makers, seems to have been members of the church. So again, we see that there was an understood group of people who made up this church, and they were the ultimate decision makers over various areas in this local church. So when we gather for a members meeting, and it's time to make a vote on whether or not so-and-so should be an elder, or whether or not we should adopt this doctrinal statement, or whether or not we should add this person into our membership, there needs to be an agreed-upon number of who actually gets a vote. We need to know who it is so that we can take a tally. We need to know the number. I think it's implied when it comes to New Testament decision-making. So let me try to apply this for us. Simply, I hope. 
Sam Storms, again, writes this. Why covenant membership? So that when your life starts to fall apart, however or whenever that may happen, you can rest assured that others who have pledged and promised themselves to you will be there to love and support you, to pray for you, to instruct you, to walk with you through the worst of times. Why covenant membership, he writes, so that in the face of rampant relativism and postmodern mush that says truth is whatever each individual wants it to be, you can stand arm and arm with brothers and sisters in Christ and say, this is the word of God. It is truth. We are united by covenant and our commitment to what it says. And we're willing to go to the ends of the earth together to make it known and, if necessary, to die for it. End quote. So I have four exhortations before us, and then we're done. My friends, if you are not a Christian, believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. The only way you can be right with God, the only way you can be part of his universal family who will be with him in fellowship for all of eternity is to recognize that you're a sinner, repent of your sin, and believe in Jesus Christ who paid the price for your sins on Mount Calvary when he went to the cross and then rose again three days later. Your only hope of salvation is putting your faith in him. My second exhortation is this. If you are a Christian and you have not yet been immersed, follow the Lord in believer's baptism. Like I went through last week, it does not save you, but it is an important mark that shows that you identify with Jesus and his gospel and his people. Please consider being immersed and ask questions if you want to know more. Third exhortation. If you are a Christian and you have followed the Lord in believer's baptism, but you have not joined a local church, would you please join us? Or another church that's gospel preaching that's similar to us and that they preach the gospel? And would you covenant together with us that we might together push against the darkness? Would you join us? We want to add you to our members that you might be held accountable and hold us accountable, that you might be loved and show us love, that you might be with us in this quest to show the glory of God in Newport Ritchie, Florida, and West Pasco County. Join us, become a part of this, or another solid gospel-preaching local church. Fourth, if you are a member of Riverside, I want to apply this text to your life today with these words. And I want you to listen carefully because you've heard these words before. The Riverside Membership Covenant. Having received Christ as my Savior and been baptized, and being in agreement with Riverside's statement, strategy, and structure, I have been led of the Holy Spirit to unite with the family of Riverside. In doing so, I commit myself to God and to the other members to do the following. One, I will protect the unity of Riverside by acting in love and grace toward the family of God in speech, action, and discipline, by praying, supporting, and assisting the leadership of the church. Number two, I will share the responsibility of Riverside by praying for the physical needs and spiritual growth of its members, by engaging with non-believers for the sake of the gospel, 
by warmly welcoming and purposely seeking to engage those who visit our weekly gathering. Three, I will serve the ministry of Riverside by faithfully seeking God in the development and use of my spiritual gifts for the building up of the body, by faithfully attending weekly to be equipped by my pastors and elders, by developing the heart of Christ who seeks to serve, not be served for the good of the kingdom. I will support the testimony, number four, of Riverside, by attending faithfully to be an encouragement to the body, by being an example of Christ in my daily life, by giving in faith regularly to the work of the local body of Christ assembled here. Those are not just words. If we're going to have words like that, they've got to mean something, my friends, that we have made a commitment to each other. So Riverside, let us press in together as we together press against the darkness of this world. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, I thank you for your church and for the fact that you promise us that you are building it. We don't always understand how or when or where, but Lord, we know that you promise to build your church, and we ask that you would build Riverside to be a church that is connected to each other in a way that we stand as members against a dark world and press into it with the light of the gospel. Would you help those here, Lord, who are struggling? They've been hurt. They've been confused. They've had people sin against them, Lord. They haven't been respected. They haven't been encouraged. They haven't been built up. Would you help them, Lord, to see how you have a great plan for them, Lord, and that your plan for them involves a covenant, a commitment to a local body. Lord, I pray that they would see that and trust in you over man. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.